In this episode, I'm going to be talking to novelist Abigail Hingwen to discuss the Asian identity, the Asian story, imposter syndrome, and more. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be a guest on the podcast. It really means so much to me. Well, I'm so glad to be here. Um, I guess we can just jump right in. Could you briefly introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah, so I am Abigail Hingwen. I am the author of Love Boat Taipei and Love Boat Reunion. Um, there are two novels that are set in Taiwan based on a program called nicknamed The Love Boat. It's an actual program that's been around since the 1960s where parents would send their Asian American kids back to um, Taipei to learn language and culture and also find a spouse. And so that's how it got its nickname, Love Boat. Um, but it ended up being a program known for a lot of kind of debauchery, like kids rebelling, sneaking out clubbing, drinking snake blood sake. Um, but, you know, in their own way, making the culture their own. So I, I had gone on the program myself when I was um, uh, fresh between freshman and sophomore year of Harvard. And these years later, I decided to write a novelized version of it. And it's been so much fun. So books being turned into a film. And I'm happy to you know chat more about, about the books and, and the film world and some of the other works that I'm doing as well. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, congratulations too on it being turned into a film. I really look forward to it. And I read the book with my mom and we both adored it. And for our listeners, my mom actually attended um, Love Boat Taipei. And in the novel, I know that they go to like Club Kiss and my mom had told me (laughs) that she had done the exact same thing. So it was really great to also read it with her um, because she had experienced it firsthand. And I think really reading that with her also helped us kind of bond over something together too. Um, And it's really just such a, it's such a fun read too. I'm so glad to hear. I love hearing stories of kids and their parents and even their grandparents reading together. I think that's incredible. That's something that I did not foresee when the book came out. Talking a little bit more about the book itself, I really love how all of your characters aren't the stereotypical Asian child. And I guess my question is, is it really important to you to kind of get the different perspectives of the Asian identity? Um, And what does the Asian identity really mean to you? I love the question. So I I have over 30 different Asian American characters in the book. And when I was talking with producers in Hollywood, they said, what is the most important thing to you? I said, that, that is what I wanted to showcase. I want to showcase that diversity within our community because it's real. And yet we weren't seeing it in media. A lot of representation of Asian Americans was either non-existent or very kind of model minority, or it's the the geeky guy sidekick who never gets the girl or um, like the scientist. And, you know, the truth is we know, like our community is incredibly diverse. um, And these 30 are just the tip of the iceberg. So I had characters who wanted to dance. I had cheerleader characters, football players, but also had doctors. Um, And my main character is trying to decide between her passion for dance and her parents' desire for her to be a doctor because her father, and that's a very specific thing too. It's not, it's not actually a stereotype. It's, it's her father had to give up his medical degree um, when he came to the United States. Um, and so he has always hoped that his daughter would actually get to practice the medicine that he wasn't able to practice. Um, but I think, you know, Asian American identity, the interesting thing about writing a story about where everyone's Asian American is that in some ways the Asian Americanness is erased. You know, it's not... It's not the most interesting thing about my characters. But on the other hand, you kind of find out what is uniquely Asian American about the characters. And I think some of the things are this inheritance that we have as 
children of immigrants, recent immigrants, relatively, um, and and how that that grows us, like it, how, how that keeps us going, you know, because our parents have suffered, have gone through a lot, and so um, some of the smaller bumps in life don't phase us as much as they might have otherwise. Um, and this uh, the centrality of family when you when you come over. I think that's partly Asian culture. That's also partly you come over to a, a strange country where all you have is your family. Um, and then the reverence for parents, um, which in some ways is a, a two-edged sword when you're also American, because on the one hand, it's wonderful to revere our elders. I think that's something that Americans can learn from Asian culture. On the other hand, it can feel oppressive when you're trying to figure out who you are in a society that really values individuals. Um, and so that's something that my characters are all kind of universally navigating. And how did being an Asian woman in particular play into your decision um, of becoming an author? Because I know that there's a lack of Asian representation in novels, and I don't really see representation in myself. I don't see myself represented through books as much as I would like. So are you very focused on writing the Asian story? And is that what's really most important to you? So, yeah, I love that question, too. So for many years, I did not write an Asian-American main character. I did not think that I was allowed to write a book like that. It actually felt presumptuous, which is ridiculous in retrospect. Um, but you know, 15 years ago, there was a Chinese-American author who was able to get a book deal, but she was asked to change her Chinese-American boy main character to a white character for marketing purposes. And just three years ago, this is happening in Hollywood. I have, I have acquaintances whose um, contracts in Hollywood say they can change their Asian-American girl to a Caucasian girl. For marketing purposes. And um, so the reality was for many years, we couldn't write Asian American main characters, um, but I wanted to. Um, and I, I think once I got over that, um, which took many years, it took encouragement from my critique group, it took encouragement from people in my MFA program. But once I started writing stories that were out of my own experience, like Love Boat Taipei with the 30 characters with this girl, Asian American girl in Ohio, I was able to tap into a much deeper sense of my characters and stories than I did before. And so I just found that I, I brought so much more to my art by being authentic. And um, yes, representation is important, but I think the most important thing when you're an artist is authenticity. And I think tapping into those Asian American stories was what helped me get there. Yeah, that's really inspiring. In Love Boat, Taipei, when you were writing it, did you see yourself reflected in Ever? And was that in a way easier to write about? Yeah. So like Ever, I do love to dance. Um, I didn't know how much I love to dance until I wrote the book. I was like, oh, I really feel like those moments when she feels the dance. Um, so I think Ever's internal journey is mine, which is that concept of trying to navigate what is it, what is it that you're passionate about, like finding what that is. Um, and owning it, and then and with the expectations of the world and what they wanted you to be. For me, it wasn't dance versus medicine. For me, it was actually my family um, wanted me to go into politics and government service. And uh, my parents are act were activists in their community, like in the sense that they would go speak to the administration of the school, not not because of us, my brother and sister and I, but because of like another immigrant kid in the community who was having trouble with the administration, and they actually needed a translator to explain, like, no, they're not being, you know, whatever it is that they're being accused of, there's actually a miscommunication here. So my parents were activists in that sense, like just really trying to um, bridge cultures, bridge people. Um, and they wanted me in my community in, in Ohio, they, grew up, they all were like, oh, you're going to Harvard, you're going to like help save the world, right? You're going to go be a politician and um, have 
and represent us, right? And I worked in Washington, D.C. for uh, Senator DeWine as an intern and then later for the Judiciary Committee on his judiciary staff. And I remember thinking like, wow, I, this is not for me. Like this is a lot of young people running around with too much power and authority and no, no life experience. Like just, they were, it was all about the power and climbing for more power and who had power and getting close to it. And I'm like, I, I can't do this. And I remember being on a phone call with my dad and I was crying. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to let everyone down. I can't do this. It's not for me. Um, and I remember he said, you know, it's okay. And that was actually really important for me to hear that, that it was okay. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I, I still had a journey. I went on to law school. I worked in corporate finance. I worked in venture capital. I worked in artificial intelligence. I loved all those jobs. And then along the way, I was still writing my books. And so it is actually very interesting to me that um, all these years later, now that I've, I've got the books out, um, I'm doing a lot of speaking. Um, and as you saw, you know, I, I just did an event with Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland, who's wonderful. So it's very strange to me that actually I'm in back in the same role that they had actually hoped for me, um, but I found my own path there. And that's actually been really kind of this amazing journey that I did not expect. I know you kind of made a really drastic career shift um, from working in the tech industry to becoming more artistic and um, a novelist. What was that transition really like for you? And did that kind of cause any self-doubt along the way? Um, what were those challenges like? Yeah, so I definitely never thought of myself as a writer. I had incredible imposter syndrome, which I, I talked about on this panel that we that, you, that we met at, um, at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. But um, I, I just had no role, role models ahead of me. I loved Laura Ingalls. I loved like C.S. Lewis. Um, I wanted to live in those worlds. But I knew if I dropped into Laura Ingalls' world that her mother wouldn't like me. Her mother didn't like Native Americans. And Laura herself, who was very open-minded, especially for her day, um, she would have probably had a lot of questions for me that I wouldn't have felt comfortable answering at the time. Um, but when I look back now on my life, I see all the footprints of being a writer. Like I used to tell stories to my brother and sister. I wrote a ton of short stories when I was, every opportunity I had for an assignment to write a story, I would write it. Um, in law school, cases, case law is built on stories. It's one story after another, disasters that the judges have to weed through and figure out like how to assign liability. Um, and I loved it. I just absolutely loved studying it. It was so easy for me to just kind of dig in and understand, like, like just kind of glean all the principles that we were intended to in a way that I struggled with other disciplines. So um, in retrospect, like, yes, I've been a writer my whole life. I journaled since I was nine, but it was only after I'd been writing seriously, I'd written two novels and then went to an MFA program that I really finally found the courage to call myself an author. Um, and, you know, I love it now when I see young people who come to my events and they're like, I'm an author, I'm a writer. And like, I love it because I, I just feel like I see so much confidence in the next generation. And I hope that, um, you know, I hope I'm glad to have been a part of, of kind of showing that, yes, you can do it. You can do really anything you want to do. When you made the switch in professions, did you ever feel a sense of fear about starting from scratch? Like, was that something that had ever crossed your mind that what if it doesn't work out? Because I know a lot of people feel that fear. Yeah. Yeah. So I did both for many years, um, but I time shifted. So I... I took three years off to raise my kids. And during that time, I actually wrote two novels. But then I decided to go back to law because I felt like I hadn't completed my training. And you cannot, it's very hard to support yourself as a writer, um, even as a New York Times bestselling author. I was told early on, like, even those authors, they make a lot of money for a few years and then that's it. So versus a legal profession is actually quite stable. 
Um, so I decided to go back to law. I finished my training while I was practicing. Um, I was sending out my novel to agents, which didn't take as much brain power as the actual writing. And by the time I went in-house, I had an agent. Then I decided to do an MFA program at nighttime, which was um, 25 hours a week. And then I spent my vacation time on campus um, for this like 10 day residency in the, the summer and the winter. Um, so I was actually kind of pursuing both for a while at the same time. And for me, the big question mark was not so much starting from the bottom because I did. I did start from the bottom of both professions and worked my way up. Um, it was more like, am I spreading myself too thin where I will not be good at either profession? And there was a moment when I wondered when I'd kind of gone up for two promotions and came in number two and my blood boat was rejected. Um, I was like, maybe I've done this wrong. I've spread myself too thin and I had nothing. But then everything kind of came back together um, in a way I didn't expect. Um, La Boat ended up going to auction with um, six different publishers, huge deal, movie deal. Um, and at the same time, I actually got a double promotion. Um, I ended up moving into under a manager who did see me, who sent me speaking on artificial intelligence around the world. Um, my last gig was hosting the artificial intelligence podcast for my company, in which I brought in all the, the major thought leaders in AI, including um, another congresswoman who held the first AI hearings on the Hill. And like it, I think when people, when people ask me, how did all this happen? I think part of it is just, I stuck myself out there. I put myself out there. I applied for these promotions. I didn't get them, but I got on the radar screen of a lot of senior people and they found a, an even better role for me. And same with the book. Like I kept putting it out there. I went out and found another agent and um, my book went on. Starting off when you first really entered this um, new industry, did you ever walk into room and notice that you were maybe the only Asian woman? How did that make you feel? And did it ever make you feel hopeless? Well, fortunately, I think by the time I came to Hollywood, I'd grown out of a lot of those those fears. But definitely early in my career as a lawyer, um, um, even in college, when I was uh, I was on the board of the Institute of Politics, I was one of the few Asian American women, um, and I don't know that I noticed that I was the only Asian American woman, but I think I wasn't always comfortable. I wasn't, I didn't know why I didn't connect as well with people or like I would, I would actually get left out. I would get forgotten, which I like later learned from talking to my other girlfriends is like, it's very common actually. So like a list of names would be read out. Thank you to all these new people who have joined our company and my name would not be on the list, even though I was among them. And I used to feel those were devastating, right? I was like, oh, they must, I must not be valuable to this company that they don't even know that I'm here. Um, and it wasn't until again, like just hearing the same story over and over and realizing actually there's a pattern, um, of this happening. It's not personal. There is a deeper systemic issue, um, that really helped me to grow out of it. Being the daughter of immigrants, did you ever feel a sense of imposter syndrome as a child? I know that I wanted to be included and accepted as a child. And so, um, I didn't like to stand out and be different when I would go to lunch with my Chinese food and I would get comments like, Ooh, what's that smell? Or what is that that you're eating? It looks weird. Right. And so those things would embarrass me. And I, I didn't want those. I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want, um, the comments. Um, so I think those are some of the hard things. And I feel like maybe a different child would have been fine with that. Like, Oh, like, let me just tell you, let me tell you about my dumplings. Like, and actually like, I wish I could have been that child, but I just wasn't. Um, and, um, but you know, I think, being an immigrant kid, it also meant that I spent time in the Philippines with my mom's family and I saw the slums. And I remember my mom saying like, we are so fortunate to live in the States where there is not poverty in the same way that we see poverty in 
other parts of the world. And I remember seeing kids running barefoot through oily patches in the slums where their homes are built of corrugated steel and they're wearing rags. And like, yeah, I've never seen that in the United States. Um, and so I think that opened my eyes to the needs of the world um, and how, like, how fortunate we are to be Americans um, and to have the resources that we have and the safety nets that we have um, as a country, um, but also like how much more work there is to do to bring the rest of the world along. And I think that for me is like one of the most valuable lessons I have from my, my family. What are ways you suggest we combat imposter syndrome or deal with it internally? Yeah, there's a lot of self-talk for sure. Um, but I think surrounding yourself with people who believe in you, who understand what you're trying to do, and it could take a long time to find those people. Um, but definitely in the tech world, I learned that, you know, there, I had, I came in under a wonderful manager who did see what I could do and gave me really wonderful opportunities. Um, and I, I think over time I learned that not everyone will see you that way, but I found the people who did, and that made all the difference. People who can understand like the value that you're bringing to the company and help you find the right roles so that you can actually fulfill that, you know, which is beneficial to both you and the company. So those are skills that I think I continue to bring with me um, now that I'm moving into like full-time content creation through the books, um, got graphic novels in the works, other film projects in the works. Um, so I think finding the partners who understand the project that I'm working on um, is key. And, you know, there are definitely, there. I get rejected every day. Uh, an actor's life is mostly rejection. I think that's similar for a writer. Um, but I don't, I no longer take it personally. No, I, now I understand like, it's just like, okay, let's, let's find the person whose work I resonate with and vice versa. And that's, that's really the exercise. And it can be hard because there's so few of us in the industry still, but the person who resonates with your work doesn't necessarily have to look like you. My editor is Italian American and she tells me like every family is exactly like her family. Um, and so I think it just, but it does take time to find those people. And what is something you tell yourself to really keep yourself going, um, to keep that motivation and to really grab hold of that confidence that you that you exude? I think some of it is going back to what other people have done for me. So my Love Boat Taipei, I wrote 26 drafts on the way to the final version and it was rejected at draft 26. But at that point, I was like, I've written five novels. Um, I just can't seem to break through the gates. My critique partners had all been published multiple times. And it was like, why are you guys still reading my books, right? And one of my critique partners like, like your stuff is good. There are weird reasons you're not getting through the gate. You just have to keep going. And so that's kind of what I tell myself when I when I hit those moments again. Like there are systemic reasons that I that I have to play. That sometimes there are um, there's feedback. There's ways that I can grow as a writer. That's within my control. But there are things that are outside of my control as well. Um, and so I try to focus on things that I can um, make an impact on. Um, I think going beyond yourself, trying to help other people, um, can take some of that self-doubt away because you realize like I'm helping these people and they're, they're succeeding um, and we're all just getting there together. And I think that's really important. What does leadership really mean to you and how do you view yourself as a leader in different aspects of your life? So it, you know, there's many types of leaders. I think um, my areas that I, I feel like I particularly um, resonate in is identifying talent just kind of recognizing talent, especially talent that is not typically seen. Um, communicating across cultural differences. Um, I think that's something that actually a lot of immigrants can do well because we see 
multiple sides um, throughout our lives. We see that there's multiple sides to a story. Um, and that is an incredibly valuable skill to bring to the table in any conversation, any negotiation to be like, let's figure out what is the true source of disagreement here? Because we it may feel like there's a huge impasse, but really there's only one small thing that we're truly disagreeing about. Let's solve that problem. And we just turn it on. Once we turn it on its head, once we kind of re, um, redefine the problem, it's usually an easy problem to solve. Um, and so that's something else that I, I often will bring to the table. And I think that a lot of immigrants can bring to the table as well. You've clearly accomplished so much. Out of all of your accomplishments, which is most important to you and why? Oh, wonderful question. Um, my family is really important to me. So I have two wonderful kids and um, a husband who's been incredibly supportive. We've kind of walked through life together for many years now. Um, and we've grown so much together as a family. Like we've learned to communicate with each other, um, you know, reflect like reflective listening. Like if someone says something, you repeat back what you've heard so that that person feels heard and you can also correct you if you actually misheard them, right? And just, um, you know, the other day we were talking about making mistakes as parents. And for me, I'm actually quite a perfectionist. And so I'm very hard on myself. And my child said to me, like, it's okay if you make a mistake, I'll forgive you. And I was that was huge for me, right? And so I think I love those conversations that we can have as a family and um, and how we're growing each other. And then as we become stronger together, I feel like we're able to make more of a contribution to our societies and communities. If you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 16, 17, your teenage self, what would you say? I would say like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> it was not easy being a teenager in Ohio. It's probably not easy to be a teenager anywhere. Um, and um, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad that it did all turn out well. It's not, it's not an easy road. There are a lot of bumps along the way, um, but you find people to do life with and, and you'll get there. And what's one thing you would tell our listeners to, in order to really harness that proud Asian woman identity? I think dream big. I saw, I said this on the panel, but I really believe like there's so much we can accomplish when you figure out what it is that you want to do. Um, what is it? What is that unique contribution you want to make to the world? And then you find the people that will help you get there. Like you help them, they help you. And you, you figure out like how do your passions intersect with the needs of the world? And that's, that's the, the space to play in. Abigail, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. I had such an amazing time chatting with you again, and it was amazing to see you. Um, could you share with our listeners just briefly um, some things you're working on that we can look out for and ways we can support you and your work? Yeah, thank you. So I have a short story out called The Idiom Algorithm. It came out in January um, with Macmillan in an anthology called Serendipity. Um, I've got Love But One and Love But Two out. I am working on more books and more film projects that I actually have not, I'm not able to share about yet, but please follow along on social media. I'm at Abigail Hingwen pretty much everywhere, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, and the best way to keep in touch is actually through my newsletter, um, which you can sign up for on my website, www.abigailhingwen.com. And I send out very occasional notes, but let, let you know where I'm going to be. So for example, this summer, I'll be in Boston this coming week, and then in um, Washington, D.C. later in July, but I'll be traveling periodically. We'll have um, 
you know, more events, more book events, and more opportunities to connect in person. So that's really the best way. And as far as supporting, um, actually right now, the biggest help would be to rate the book. So one thing we found is that Asian Americans don't tend to rate online. So platforms like Goodreads and Amazon are actually really helpful in getting word out about the book, um, especially I think if you hit over 100, 100 ratings, but Asian Americans for some reason don't tend to rate. So their vote in some ways is not reflected in the vote that's that's there. So if you can rate the books, um, it's incredibly helpful. Absolutely. Thank you so much again, Abigail. Lyric, it was so fun to talk, to talk with you. Thank you again for having me. Thank you.